A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, Angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, we have begun our annual Lenten pilgrimage, which began this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. We were marked with the sign of ashes. We were reminded of our mortality. Remember, man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. We were called to repentance, repent and believe in the gospel. And thus we began this pilgrimage, this pilgrimage that prepares us to be able to enter into and celebrate the Easter mysteries. And so every Lent, for every first Sunday of the Lenten season, Holy Mother Church always assigns us one of the gospel accounts of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And it does so very, very deliberately because the account of Jesus's sojourn in the wilderness is a wonderful metaphor for the Lenten season. Now, that's pretty obvious. He spent 40 days and nights praying and fasting in the wilderness. And so that clearly corresponds to our tradition of spending 40 days imitating our Lord in prayer with fasting. And so there's an intimate connection there that that most Catholics understand. We get that. But there's more, my friends. Jesus sets for us an example. He is the model that we're called to emulate. Because during this sojourn in the wilderness, where our Lord immerses himself in prayer and in fasting, it is precisely during this wilderness sojourn that Jesus is tempted. In fact, in today's gospel, we read in the very first verse, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now that's important, my friends. The Holy Spirit, this is following the baptism of Jesus. Jesus submitted to a baptism in the Jordan River. 
and he emerges from the waters of the Jordan, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is ushered by the Holy Spirit into the desert. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert where he is tempted by the devil. It says here, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now that's curious. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness precisely to be tested, precisely to be tempted. Now, let's step back for a second. I have spoken to you repeatedly of the typological significance. Matthew's gospel reminds us that Jesus is the new Moses, the long-awaited prophet like unto Moses. And I've spoken to you of the significance of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, which is a recapitulation of the Exodus event, because the Exodus begins and it ends with the crossing of the waters. We begin with the crossing of the Red Sea at the beginning of the Exodus. And then the Exodus concludes with the crossing of the Jordan River from slavery to freedom, from Egypt to the promised land. And so the fact that Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River at the very spot where the Israelites crossed over to the promised land, that is truly significant because it is precisely through baptism, the sacrament of baptism, that we pass over from death to life, that we pass over from slavery to freedom. We become children of God. And what's more, Jesus, after being baptized in the waters of the Jordan, he emerges and is led immediately by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he spends 40 days and 40 nights, fasting, praying, and being tested. And this clearly is reminiscent of the 40 years that Israel spent wandering through the desert. It was a time of testing. And that's precisely what the number 40 means, biblically speaking. It is synonymous with a period of testing a period of trial, a period of purification. And this is echoed throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Not only do you have the image of Israel that spent 40 years in the wilderness, but you also have the example of Noah and the flood. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, a time of, of great testing and trial as Noah prepared and built the ark in order to safeguard and to protect a microcosm of life as the Lord purified and cleansed the world of iniquity. So a time of purification, a time of trial. You have the example of Moses, who ascended the mountain of God, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, where he prayed, fasted, and prepared himself for 40 days and nights in order to enter into the presence of God, in order to receive the word of God that he was then to deliver to the Israelites. We have a similar example in the prophet Elijah, who journeyed for 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, where he had an encounter with the Lord in that still small voice. And so throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we have example after example of the significance of the number 40, a time of purification, a time of testing, a time of trial. Jesus here is recapitulating in his own life the Exodus event. He is the new Moses who shows us the way to freedom, who shows us the way 
to the promised land. But Jesus is more than just a new Moses who has come to lead us in a new exodus from slavery to freedom. But Jesus, in addition to being the new and greater Moses, is also the new Adam. And this is very significant, my friends, because as we go through this account of Jesus's temptations, we're going to see incredible parallels between the temptation of Jesus and the temptation of Adam in the garden. So let's first take a look at this threefold temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This was by design. And we're going to discover as we go through this why the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Verse 2, And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterward, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's stop there. That's the first temptation. Jesus has come to the end of a 40-day period of intense fasting. And the devil appears when Jesus is at his weakest because the devil is a tactician. He knows full well that Jesus is hungry. And so he seeks to tempt him, to tempt him to break the fast, to do away with this fast and to indulge himself. What's more, he's tempting him to demonstrate his power, to transform these stones into loaves of bread and to indulge himself. He is tempting him to satisfy his hunger, to satisfy his desire, his hunger and his thirst. Jesus responds by quoting the sacred scriptures, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now that's significant, my friends. Jesus rebukes the devil by quoting the word of God. And that the word of God, ultimately, by quoting this verse, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he's cluing us into the significance, the importance of God's word, being faithful to God's word, nourishing ourselves with God's word, which is greater than the nourishment that we receive from ordinary bread. Now, stick with me. We're going somewhere here. That's the first temptation, to indulge to be able to satisfy his hunger, his thirst, and to engage and indulge in pleasure. For he had been sacrificing, praying and fasting intensely for a period of 40 days. We move then to the next temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, that's really interesting. The devil then takes a cue from Jesus and he himself quotes the scriptures. For it is written, he will give his angels charge of you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting Psalm 91. And so the devil is seeking to parrot Jesus by quoting the scriptures, finding a way to, to justify his taunt his temptation, that Jesus would throw himself 
from the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city of Jerusalem and thus create a spectacle. He wanted Jesus to demonstrate his great power. You see, the people, the pilgrims from all over the world gathered at the temple, which was the holiest place in the world. And with the throngs of pilgrims gathered in the holy city, this would have been an amazing spectacle for Jesus to to fling himself, to catapult himself, to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple, and then to fall precipitously to the ground, but before hitting the ground, having legions of angels catch him, lest he dash his foot against a stone, as the scriptures declare, as the devil is quoting here, this would have resulted in the people being absolutely astounded and amazed. They would have recognized Jesus as one sent by God, and they would have worshipped him. Imagine that, witnessing that kind of a spectacle. Jesus demonstrating his identity, his power. Remember, the devil repeatedly taunts Jesus, if you are the Son of God. He's questioning his identity. Prove to me, prove to everyone who you are. He's tempting him to pride, to want to exalt himself and demonstrate his power. So we have the first temptation, which is a temptation to pleasure, to indulge his hunger, his thirst, his senses. And the second temptation is to what? To pride, to self-exaltation. And what is Jesus' response to that second temptation? Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it is written. Jesus once again goes back to Scripture. The devil tries to twist the Scriptures, quoting the Scriptures out of context. And what's fascinating is that the psalm that he quotes is Psalm 91, which was precisely one of the psalms that, that the Jewish exorcists used to use in order to drive out demons, in order to drive out the devil. And yet the devil is appropriating, quite ironically, this very psalm that he's quoting now to Jesus in order to tempt him to capitulate and to indulge in transforming these stones to bread. Well, Jesus goes right back to Scripture. Again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And in essence, what he's doing here is he's revealing to the devil that he, in fact, is the Lord incarnate. Again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So Jesus is shown all of the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, namely not just the riches and the wealth, but but also the souls, the countless souls that were represented in each one of these kingdoms and nations. Jesus is shown all the kingdoms of the world in one instant. And the devil who is the prince of this world who has dominion over this world, he turns to Jesus and says, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, backing up for a second, we have to ask ourselves, 
really these three temptations in the wilderness, were they real temptations? I mean, were they genuine temptations? Was Jesus truly tempted here? Because remember, we know that Jesus is fully God. And so it would have been easy for him to rebuff the advances of the enemy. It would have been easy for him. It would have been a piece of cake for him to rebuke the devil. And so we tend to make the mistake of minimizing the significance of these temptations, right? After all, Jesus is God. And we fail to acknowledge the fact that while he is 100% and completely God, he's also 100% man, fully divine, but also fully human. He is one divine person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And as such, Jesus is being tempted in the desert. The hunger that he feels is true hunger. The thirst is true thirst. That temptation was real. The temptation to demonstrate his power by by catapulting himself from the pinnacle of the temple in order to, to reveal his glory and his divinity, that the world might come to worship him, we might minimize that, but that was a true temptation because Jesus came to win souls, to reconcile humanity to the Father. And it would have been very tempting for him to avoid, to bypass all that he would have to suffer, the rejection, his passion, suffering, and death on the cross. It would have been so easy for him to avoid that for the sake of what? Of just cutting to the chase and revealing himself as the God-man that the world might come to believe in him. So was that a real temptation? You bet it was. And this third temptation, the temptation to, to receive from the prince of this world, Satan, all the kingdoms of the world, that also would have been appealing to Jesus. Why? Because he would have seen in an instant all of those souls that he came to win for the Father and that all these kingdoms would be given to him, but without the cross, without his passion, without his suffering, without the shedding of his blood. Again, shortcuts. It would have been tempting for Jesus, but nevertheless, he overcomes these temptations. My friends, Jesus was not merely going through the motions, but he was suffering this trial by ordeal. He was undergoing true temptations, temptations that were brought about by the enemy himself, Satan, who is a strategist, who appears when Jesus is at his weakest, just as he's preparing to launch his ministry, that's when the devil shows up because he is a tactician at heart. And he has devised a strategy that he is clearly implementing here, but we find that Jesus at every turn, he rebuffs the enemy by quoting the sacred scriptures. Jesus, in verse 10, responds to this final temptation with these words. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Three temptations. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered why these three temptations, these specific temptations. Have you ever wondered? I mean, there could have been any number of 
of other temptations, but yet we find these three specific temptations listed here. Why? And that's a good question. It's one that we're going to tackle now because Jesus, in addition to being the new Moses, is also the new Adam. Not only is Jesus here recapitulating the 40-year sojourn of the Israelites in the desert, but he is also recapitulating the threefold temptation of the first man, the first Adam in the book of Genesis, because Jesus is the new Adam. Now, in order to understand this, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. And I'm going to demonstrate to you how in this narrative found in Genesis chapter 3, we find here clues that will help us to unpack the significance and the meaning of the threefold temptation of Jesus. And it's no coincidence that our first reading for this first Sunday of Lent is taken precisely from the book of Genesis. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And so we read, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's stop there for a second. So in this part of, this first part of our first reading for this first Sunday of Lent, we're given an account of the creation, the creation of man. And this man, Adam, was placed in a garden, paradise, the Garden of Eden, this lush garden that was teeming with life. He was given the freedom to eat from any of the trees in this lush garden. And we're told that in the midst of this garden was the tree of life and also another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we know that he was forbidden, and by extension Eve, the helpmate that God created out of the rib of Adam, they were forbidden from partaking of the fruit of that tree. They could eat of all the other trees in the garden, save that one tree. They could not partake of that tree forbidden fruit if they were to god indicated to them and warned them that they would surely die now then we jump to chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the lord god had made he said to the woman did god say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden and you know that the devil here again who is being acknowledged As the most subtle creature, he is cunning, he's a tactician, and he is planting here with this question, he is trying to seduce Eve to committing a sin, to breaking faith with God, breaking his command. With this question, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
But the serpent said, verse 4, to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Close quote. Now, what I want to do is direct your attention to verse six. That's the key verse here. So when the woman saw that the tree was number one, good for food, number two, that it was a delight to the eyes, number three, that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. In that one verse, we find a threefold temptation, which corresponds perfectly to the threefold temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, in the desert. Let's take it one at a time. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it would satisfy her hunger, her appetite. Basically, he's appealing to her flesh. He's appealing to her senses. He's appealing to her appetite, her desire for pleasure, to be satisfied physically. Now, what does the devil do with Jesus in the wilderness? The first temptation is is for Jesus. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into loaves of bread. That is, satisfy your hunger, your appetite, your desire to be nourished and to be satisfied, your desire for pleasure. It's the same temptation, the same tactic. Look at the second one. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that fruit was was appealing. It was enticing. It was beautiful. It was shiny. It looked luscious. And she wanted to reach out and possess it, to take it for herself. She coveted it. Jesus in the desert is likewise shown all the kingdoms of the world in one instant and all their glory. And the devil tempts him. I will give all of this to you. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this wonderful? Didn't you come for all of these souls? Didn't you come to win all of these kingdoms back? Well, I will give them to you if you would but bow down and worship me. You see, Jesus was also tempted in the same manner that Eve and Adam were tempted in the garden. It was a delight to the eyes. And how tempting that must have been for Jesus in one instant to receive all of the kingdoms and consequently all the souls of the world. What a delight to the eyes. And then finally it says here, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. To make one wise. What does that mean? Well, he's tempting them. He's tempting them to to imitate him. Remember that he sought to exalt himself. He wanted to be God. And because of that pride, because of that hubris, he was cast down. And what is the devil doing here? He's tempting them to pride. You know, God wants to keep you at arm's length. He doesn't want you to have this power. 
this knowledge because knowledge is power. He doesn't want you to have that knowledge, that wisdom. He's trying to keep it from you, but you could just reach out and take it. And so here, the devil is appealing to that desire to become wise, to become like God, that desire that flows from pride. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus's temptation. That third temptation is, is to what? Throw yourself down from the parapet of the temple. Make a spectacle here. Demonstrate your power. Show the people, show the world who you are. Essentially, exalt yourself. It's interesting. The church fathers, they liken that particular temptation. Remember, the devil, he brings him to the parapet of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, the highest structure in the holy city of Jerusalem, the highest point. And he's tempting Jesus to throw himself down in imitation of him to lower himself, to descend because of pride, to imitate him in falling as the devil fell. Yet the devil was thrust down by the archangel Michael. When that war broke out in heaven, he was cast down. The scripture says those who exalt themselves will be humbled. They will be cast down. And so here we find Lucifer, the fallen angel, tempting Jesus to follow him. Throw yourself down that the world might come to adore you. He's tempting him to pride. So what do we find here? A threefold temptation. Number one, a temptation to pleasure. Then a temptation to possession. And then a temptation to what? To pride. We have here in this one verse, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that is a temptation to pleasure to indulgence, that it was a delight to the eyes. She coveted that fruit, that forbidden fruit. The devil was tempting her to reach out and to take what did not belong to her, that which was forbidden. And then finally, that the tree was desired to make one wise, tempting us to pride. And in the temptation account that we find in the gospel, we find that same pattern of temptation emerge. Turn these stones to bread. I'll give you all these kingdoms in one instant. Just bow down and worship me. Cast yourself from the parapet of the temple and demonstrate your power. Pride. Pleasure. Possessions. Pride. We find the same threefold temptation recapitulated in the very life of Jesus in this temptation account. By accident? No. By design, we find here that Jesus is the new Adam. Stick with me here. Look at the parallels. Adam was placed in a garden, in a lush paradise. Once Adam sinned, he was thrown out of, he was expelled from, cast out of the Garden of Eden. Paradise lost. And essentially, what happens is, because of Adam's sin, that garden becomes a barren desert. Jesus enters into the desert, which is the result of the fall of the first Adam. Adam is approached by a fallen angel and is tempted three times. Jesus encounters a fallen angel, that same fallen angel, and is likewise tempted three times. Adam succumbs to that threefold temptation. Jesus 
emerges victorious. He rebuffs the enemy. He rebukes the enemy with the word of God. And furthermore, don't miss this, going back to the gospel, we find that Jesus, we're told in verse 11, when he rebukes the devil for the third time, the last time, it says, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Why does Matthew include this detail? Why does he include the fact that angels came and ministered to Jesus? Once again, this is a call back to the book of Genesis. We see here, going back to Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, the angels, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see what's happening here. The first man, Adam, was cast out of the garden. He was expelled from the garden. Paradise lost. What's more, God stationed cherubim at the entrance to the garden in order to prevent Adam from partaking once again of the fruit of the tree of life. He could no longer be nourished in the Garden of Eden. Then we have Jesus, who is the new Adam, who does not succumb to the threefold temptation, but he emerges victorious. And as a result of his victory, the angels appear to minister to him, to nourish him, to nourish the God-man who had fasted for 40 days and nights. So just think about that. The parallels, the contrast between the first man, Adam, and the new Adam, Jesus Christ. It's powerful. Furthermore, when you look at this threefold temptation, this threefold pattern, we know that in the scriptures, for example, if you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, St. John, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and St. John writes about the threefold lust what the ancients refer to as the threefold or the triple concupiscence. We read verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We find there a threefold pattern what is referred to as the threefold lust, what the ancients called the triple concupiscence, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at both temptation accounts. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And furthermore, it was desired in order to make one wise. That's the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You look at Jesus' temptation. Turn these stones to bread, lust of the flesh. 
Look, I will give you all of these kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. That's the lust of the eyes. And finally, throw yourself from this parapet. Demonstrate your power. That's a temptation to the pride, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is the threefold pattern, the triple concupiscence. The ancients believed that these three temptations represented really and essentially all temptations. They have their root in these three fundamental temptations. A temptation to pleasure, a temptation to possession, and a temptation to pride. And ultimately, pride is what precedeth the fall, according to the scriptures. That's ground zero for what leads us to succumb to temptation. It is our pride. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Now, we see this pattern manifested throughout the scriptures. And in fact, just to tie this up, you look at our epistle for this Sunday, which is taken from Romans chapter 5. And here St. Paul is explicitly likening Jesus to Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. We pick up here in verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And we jump to verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So just as, let's stop there for a second, death came through the sin of one man, so life will come through the righteousness of another man, the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Close quote. Isn't that powerful? Here, St. Paul, in this passage, and again, this is just a tiny excerpt of a much longer passage here. I'd encourage you to read this section of Romans chapter 5 where he describes Jesus as the new Adam. He speaks of Adam who was a type. This is found in verse 14. Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. And so St. Paul here in this passage is writing about biblical typology and how Jesus is the new Adam who recapitulates what took place in the garden. And as the new Adam, he emerges victorious. He does not succumb to the threefold lust, the threefold temptation, that temptation to the lust of the flesh. What does Jesus demonstrate in the desert? He demonstrates self-mastery. He rebukes the devil. He does not succumb to that temptation to indulge his fleshly appetite. No, he rebukes the devil. So he shows us self-mastery. Then the next temptation the lust of the eyes. The devil shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus does not succumb to that temptation because he demonstrates a holy detachment, a detachment from the things of this world. He shows us the way. And then finally, in that final temptation, that temptation to pride, 
throw yourself down from this parapet. Demonstrate that you are all-powerful. What does Jesus show us? He shows us the power of humility. Those who humble themselves shall be exalted. And he, as St. Paul declares in his letter to the Philippians, he condescended, he emptied himself. The Greek term is kenosis and took on the form of a servant, of a slave. Because of that, God highly exalted him. And he bestowed upon him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who humble themselves shall be exalted. So Jesus shows us self-mastery. He shows us holy detachment. He shows us the power of humility. These are the virtues the virtues that he exemplifies in this account of his temptation in the desert. But these are virtues that he exemplifies throughout the course of his entire life, but he shows us the way to overcome temptation, to overcome this threefold lust. Isn't that powerful? In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 3. 77. If you turn with me to 377, read the following regarding Jesus and the example that he furnishes us in this account. We read, and I quote, the quote, mastery, unquote, over the world that God offered man from the beginning was realized above all within man himself. Mastery of self. The first man was unimpaired and ordered in his whole being because he was free from the triple concupiscence. What is the triple concupiscence? Once again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The Catechism unpacks this. It states, because he was free from the triple concupiscence that subjugates him to, and it lists three things, the pleasures of the senses, that's the lust of the flesh, covetousness for earthly goods, that's the lust of the eyes, and self-assertion, contrary to the dictates of reason. Close quote. That's the pride of life. And so here the Catechism speaks of this triple concupiscence. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. How do we overcome this threefold lust? Jesus shows us the way. And in fact, this, this leads us to, to apply what we've learned here to the three pillars of the Lenten season. Why are we celebrating on a continual, on an annual basis, the season of Lent? Why are we devoting ourselves to observing this 40-day long period? Is it just about giving something up? I mean, typically when people think of Lent, they think of, okay, well, what do I need to give up? I'm going to give up chocolate. I'm going to give up coffee. I'm going to give up sweets. You name it. Typically, Lent is reduced to, in addition to receiving ashes, it is reduced to giving something up, making a sacrifice. Now, certainly that's part of the discipline of Lent, the spirituality of Lent. But there are three fundamental pillars of the Lenten season, prayer, fasting, and the giving of alms. Those are the three pillars of the Lenten season. And where do we get these three pillars? Well, we get them from Jesus. If you turn with me to 
Matthew chapter 6. In this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he furnishes his disciples with the means, with the strategies that they can employ in order to grow in holiness. Because that's what he's calling us to, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But how do we cooperate with God's grace in order that he would make us perfect? Because we cannot make ourselves perfect apart from the grace of God, apart from the Holy Spirit. So how do we cooperate? How do we grow in righteousness and in holiness? And here in chapter 6 in particular, Jesus lays out these three pillars. Let's begin with the pillar of fasting. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6. And when you fast... Do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Close quote. Notice that Jesus does not say if you fast, but rather when you fast. It is a foregone conclusion that his disciples will engage in fasting when you fast. Now, why is that an important pillar? Because fasting, depriving oneself of the things of the world, depriving oneself of the pleasures of the world, because when you fast from from food or from drink or from other physical and sensual pleasures, you are depriving yourself of these things in order to demonstrate self-mastery. This is an antidote to the temptation to indulge our senses, to seek after pleasure. Fasting is an antidote to that. And this is so powerful, my friends. Why? Because we all have certain proclivities. We all have certain things in our lives, certain pleasures that we seek after on a continual basis. I mean, addictions are rooted and grounded with a desire to to experience pleasure. We are all pleasure seekers. And there's a danger in that. We, by engaging in fasting, are, are subjugating our flesh. We are subjugating our fleshly appetites. For those of us who struggle with the sin of gluttony, that is indulging ourselves in overeating, overindulging ourselves by consuming an inordinate amount of, of food or, or drink or what have you, by fasting, we demonstrate that we are subjugating our flesh, that our appetites, our stomach is not going to rule us. It's not going to lead us. It's not going to take command of our lives. But no, we're going to subjugate our flesh, our stomachs, We are going to, through our will, we're going to subjugate that flesh so that it doesn't rule us, but that we will rule over it. Kind of a mind over matter scenario here. We're talking about executing and exerting our will, the power of our will over that of our senses. And truth be told, my friends, we all struggle with our fleshly appetites. Each and every one of us has to to contend with the desires of our flesh. And by fasting, by depriving ourselves of those physical pleasures, we grow in our capacity to do God's will. We grow in our capacity 
to achieve self-mastery, which is precisely what Jesus demonstrates to us. Self-mastery, mastery over self. We then look at one of the other pillars, the pillar of giving alms. Thus, when you give alms, this is found in verse 2, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Close quote. What do we find there? Thus, when you give alms, not if you give alms, but when you give alms, Jesus is commanding his disciples to fast and to give alms. Now, in giving alms, we're divesting ourselves of our possessions, our wealth, our money. We are giving to the needy and to the poor. That is the practice of detachment. We're detaching ourselves from possessions. And again, that's an antidote to what? The lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes leads us to what? To covet the things of the world, to accumulate possessions and the things of the world that we believe are somehow going to satisfy us. But the more we covet, the more we take to ourselves, the more we desire, the more we lust after more things. That's the lust of the eyes. And one great antidote to the lust of the eyes is when you give alms, when you give of yourself, when you detach yourself from your wealth, from your money, from your possessions, and give to those who are in need. That is a salutary practice, my friends. It helps us to overcome that lust of the eyes. And finally, we have the final pillar, which is the pillar of prayer. Pick up in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Close quote. That's verses five through seven. So we see a pattern here. And when you fast, thus when you give alms, and when you pray, these are the three pillars of the Lenten season. Fasting, giving alms, and praying. When we pray, we are humbling ourselves and acknowledging God for who he is. This is the ultimate antidote to what? To pride the pride of life. That is the final lust of the threefold lust, the pride of life. And so the more we immerse ourselves in prayer, the more humble we will become because prayer is a manifestation of what? Of humility. So to the degree that we can practice these pillars of fasting, of giving alms and praying, we will be growing in virtue. We will be growing in self-mastery in holy detachment, and in humility by practicing these pillars. This is precisely why on Ash Wednesday we are furnished with this regimen for the soul because for Ash Wednesday we always read from this section of the Beatitudes regarding these three pillars of prayer, fasting, and the giving of alms because this is the strategy, the threefold strategy that we employ during the season of Lent, these 40 days in imitation of Jesus. 
And in Jesus Christ, we have a model, an exemplar to follow, to emulate, for he shows us the way. In fact, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, as I seek to close this episode, let me just share with you a few passages here that that really echo so much of what we've been able to unpack together in this episode. We begin with paragraph 538. The Gospels speak of a time of solitude for Jesus in the desert immediately after his baptism by John. Driven by the Spirit into the desert, Jesus remains there for 40 days without eating. He lives among wild beasts, and angels minister to him. At the end of this time, Satan tempts him three times, seeking to compromise his filial attitude toward God. Jesus rebuffs these attacks, which recapitulate the temptations of Adam in paradise and of Israel in the desert. And the devil leaves him, quote, until an opportune time, close quote. In paragraph 539, the Catechism continues, quote, The evangelists indicate the salvific meaning of this mysterious event. Jesus is the new Adam who remained faithful just where the first Adam had given into temptation. Jesus fulfills Israel's vocation perfectly in contrast to those who had once provoked God during 40 years in the desert. Christ reveals himself as God's servant, totally obedient to the divine will. In this, Jesus is the devil's conqueror. He, quote, binds the strong man, unquote, to take back his plunder. Jesus' victory over the tempter in the desert anticipates victory at the passion, the supreme act of obedience of his filial love for the Father. Close quote. Isn't that powerful? And finally, paragraph 540, which states, and I quote, Jesus' temptation reveals the way in which the Son of God is Messiah. Contrary to the way Satan proposes to him and the way men wish to attribute to him, this is why Christ vanquished the tempter for us. Then it quotes Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which states, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested, as we are, yet without sinning. Unquote. Then it concludes, By the solemn forty days of Lent, the church unites herself each year to the mystery of Jesus in the desert. Close quote. I'm going to repeat that final sentence once again. By the solemn 40 days of Lent, the church, we unite ourselves each year to the mystery of Jesus in the desert. Close quote. That is powerful, my friends. That, that describes really the meaning of, of the Lenten season, we are following Jesus who beckons us to follow him into the wilderness, into the desert for a time of, of testing, of trial, of purification, of strengthening 
we follow Jesus for these 40 days and we imitate his example, we implement the threefold strategy, these pillars that he gives to us, prayer, fasting, the giving of alms, because the devil continues to use the same tactics that he used on the first man, Adam, and on the new Adam, Jesus Christ. He continues to use this threefold strategy against us. And Jesus wants us to grow, to grow in virtue and in grace. And by practicing these pillars, by imitating the example of our blessed Lord and the apostles and the great saints throughout the centuries, we are striving to fulfill the will of God for our lives, to cooperate with his grace. And we too, because of Jesus, who conquers the enemy for us, he enables us, not only through his example and through these pillars, but through his amazing grace, he supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He knows and is well acquainted, as the author of Hebrews describes and, and testifies, he's acquainted with our weakness. He himself subjected himself to these temptations and overcame them because of his filial attitude towards God. What is your filial attitude? Do you desire to grow in grace and in holiness? Do you desire to be set free from the traps, the lures of the enemy? Do you desire to break free from your own addictions, your own sinful proclivities? Do you wish to emancipate yourself from this triple concupiscence that so robs you, robs us of true happiness and peace. Well, I've got good news for you, my friends. Holy Mother Church beckons us, beckons us to follow after Jesus, to enter into the spiritual wilderness, the spiritual desert, in order to do battle with the enemy of our souls, in order to confront that which is broken in us. And by practicing these three pillars, with the aid of God's grace, we too can emerge victorious. Christ shows us the way, my friends. I'd like to conclude this episode by citing today's responsorial psalm, which is taken from David's iconic Psalm 51, the Miserere. And the response for this psalm for this first Sunday of Lent is very simply, Be merciful, O Lord, for we have sinned. This is a penitential season, my friends, a season devoted to a true interior examination, what we call an examination of conscience, that during this season we are to look within, to identify the areas in our lives that are disordered, to examine and to identify the passions that we've indulged in, to identify the threefold lust that we've succumbed to in our own lives, and to repent, repent of those sins, and to seek the mercy of God one of the other pillars of this season of Lent is the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And I want to encourage you to make every effort during this holy season to make a good and thorough examination of conscience and to seek out a priest and to make a good and holy confession. Avail yourself of the great mercy of our Lord, of his compassion, and of the great love that he has for us he who died on the cross and rose from the dead in order to reconcile us to the Father. I exhort you, my friends, to join me in seeking after that mercy, in availing ourselves of that great grace, 
So I want to conclude by citing from this Sunday's responsorial psalm, and I pray that we too would adopt this spirit of compunction and contrition, of true repentance. For our God is a merciful God who wants to draw us to the bosom of the Father and make us whole again. We begin in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love. According to thy abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight. Then we jump to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And finally, verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Close quote. Isn't that beautiful? Couldn't think of a better note to end on for this first Sunday of Lent. My friends, if if this episode and this podcast series has been a blessing to you, praise God for that. It certainly has been a blessing for me to be able to produce these episodes. If this podcast has been and continues to be a source of blessing for you, I want to encourage you to help me to make this a blessing for others. Be sure to share this link far and wide. For those of you who are watching via our YouTube channel, be sure to hit that like button. And what's more, if you have yet to subscribe, what are you waiting for? Hit that big red subscribe button and the notification bell. By liking and subscribing, you indicate to YouTube that there's value in this content and they're more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. That's the whole point of this channel is to make Christ known. So please be sure to like and subscribe. If you'd like to take a step further and partner with me in this endeavor and become a co-producer of this podcast, consider becoming a patron of Upper Room Studios of this podcast series. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina to find out more. And speaking of patrons, I want to thank my amazing and faithful patrons for their continued support and encouragement. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. And so, my friends, with that said, until we gather again to consider the readings for the second Sunday of the Lenten season, my prayer continues to be for you in the words of the Apostle Paul. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, may the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you. <laughs>